Section 1 of Chapter 21 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 21, Section 1. On the continent, the news of Mary's death excited various emotions. The Huguenots, in every part of Europe to which they had wandered, bewailed the elect lady, who had retrenched from her own royal state in order to furnish bread and shelter to the persecuted people of God. In the United Provinces, where she was well known and had always been popular, she was tenderly lamented. Matthew Pryor, whose parts and accomplishments had obtained for him the patronage of the magnificent Dorset, and who was now attached to the embassy at The Hague, wrote that the coldest and most passionless of nations was touched. The very marble, he said, wept. The lamentations of Cambridge and Oxford were echoed by Leiden and Utrecht. The States-General put on mourning. The bells of all the steeples of Holland tolled dolefully day after day. James, meanwhile, strictly prohibited all mourning at Saint-Germain, and prevailed on Louis to issue a similar prohibition at Versailles. Some of the most illustrious nobles of France, and among them the Dukes of Bouillon and of Duras, were related to the house of Nassau, and had always, when death visited that house, punctiliously observed the decent ceremonial of sorrow. They were now forbidden to wear black, and they submitted, but it was beyond the power of the great king to prevent his high-bred and sharp-witted courtiers from whispering to each other that there was something pitiful in this revenge taken by the living on the dead, by a parent on a child. The hopes of James and of his companions in exile were now higher than they had been since the day of La Hogue. Indeed, the general opinion of politicians both here and on the continent, was that William would find it impossible to sustain himself much longer on the throne. He would not, it was said, have sustained himself so long but for the help of his wife. Her affability had conciliated many who had been repelled by his freezing looks and short answers. Her English tones, sentiments, and tastes had charmed many who were disgusted by his Dutch accent and Dutch habits. Though she did not belong to the high church party, she loved that ritual to which she had been accustomed from infancy, and complied willingly and reverently with some ceremonies which he considered, not indeed as sinful, but as childish, and in which he could hardly bring himself to take part. While the war lasted, it would be necessary that he should pass nearly half the year 
out of England. Hitherto she had, when he was absent, supplied his place, and had supplied it well. Who was to supply it now? In what vice-regent could he place equal confidence? To what vice-regent would the nation look up with equal respect? All the statesmen of Europe therefore agreed in thinking that his position, difficult and dangerous at best, had been made more difficult and more dangerous by the death of the Queen. But all the statesmen of Europe were deceived, and strange to say, his reign was decidedly more prosperous and more tranquil after the decease of Mary than during her life. A few hours after he had lost the most tender and beloved of all his friends, he was delivered from the most formidable of all his enemies. Death had been busy at Paris as well as in London. While Tennyson was praying by the bed of Mary, Bourdaloue was administering the last unction to Luxembourg. The great French general had never been a favourite at the French court, but when it was known that his feeble frame, exhausted by war and pleasure, was sinking under a dangerous disease, the value of his services was for the first time fully appreciated. The royal physicians were sent to prescribe for him, the sisters of St. Cyr were ordered to pray for him, but prayers and prescriptions were in vain. How glad the Prince of Orange will be, said Lewis, when the news of our loss reaches him. He was mistaken. That news found William unable to think of any loss but his own. During the month which followed the death of Mary, the King was incapable of exertion. Even to the addresses of the two Houses of Parliament, he replied only by a few inarticulate sounds. The answers which appear in the journals were not uttered by him, but were delivered in writing. Such business as could not be deferred was transacted by the intervention of Portland, who was himself oppressed with sorrow. During some weeks the important and confidential correspondence between the King and Heinzius was suspended. At length William forced himself to resume that correspondence, but his first letter was the letter of a heart-broken man. Even his martial ardour had been tamed by misery. I tell you in confidence, he wrote, that I feel myself to be no longer fit for military command. Yet I will try to do my duty, and I hope that God will strengthen me. So despondingly did he look forward to the most brilliant and successful of his many campaigns. There was no interruption of parliamentary business. While the abbey was hanging with black for the funeral of the queen, the commons came to a vote, which at the time attracted little attention, which produced no excitement, which has been left unnoticed by voluminous analysts, and of which the history can be but imperfectly traced in the archives of Parliament. 
but which has done more for liberty and for civilization than the great charter or the bill of rights early in the session a select committee had been appointed to ascertain what temporary statutes were about to expire and to consider which of those statutes it might be expedient to continue the report was made and all the recommendations contained in that report were adopted with one exception among the laws which the committee advised the house to renew was the law which subjected the press to a censorship the question was put that the house do agree with the committee in the resolution that the act entitled an act for preventing abuses in printing seditious treasonable and unlicensed pamphlets and for regulating of printing and printing presses be continued the speaker pronounced that the nose had it and the eyes did not think fit to divide a bill for continuing all the other temporary acts which in the opinion of the committee could not properly be suffered to expire was brought in passed and sent to the lords in a short time this bill came back with an important amendment the lords had inserted in the list of acts to be continued the act which placed the press under the control of licensers the commons resolved not to agree to the amendment demanded a conference and appointed a committee of managers the leading manager was edward clark a staunch whig who represented taunton the stronghold during fifty troubled years of civil and religious freedom clark delivered to the lords in the painted chamber a paper containing the reasons which had determined the lower house not to renew the licensing act this paper completely vindicates the resolution to which the commons had come but it proves at the same time that they knew not what they were doing what a revolution they were making what a power they were calling into existence they pointed out concisely clearly forcibly and sometimes with a grave irony which is not unbecoming the absurdities and iniquities of the statute which was about to expire but all their objections will be found to relate to matters of detail on the great question of principle on the question whether the liberty of unlicensed printing be on the whole a blessing or a curse to society not a word is said the licensing act is condemned not as a thing essentially evil but on account of the petty grievances the exactions the jobs the commercial restrictions the domiciliary visits which were incidental to it it is pronounced mischievous because it enables the company of stationers to extort money from publishers because it empowers the agents of the government to search houses under the authority of general warrants because it confines the foreign book trade to the port of london because it detains valuable packages of books at the custom house till the pages are mildewed 
the commons complain that the amount of the fee which the licenser may demand is not fixed they complain that it is made penal in an officer of the customs to open a box of books from abroad except in the presence of one of the censors of the press how it is very sensibly asked is the officer to know that there are books in the box till he has opened it such were the arguments which did what milton's areopagitica had failed to do the lords yielded without a contest they probably expected that some less objectionable bill for the regulation of the press would soon be sent up to them and in fact such a bill was brought into the house of commons read twice and referred to a select committee but the session closed before the committee had reported and english literature was emancipated and emancipated for ever from the control of the government this great event passed almost unnoticed evelyn and luttrell did not think it worth mentioning in their diaries the dutch minister did not think it worth mentioning in his dispatches no allusion to it is to be found in the monthly mercuries the public attention was occupied by other and far more exciting subjects one of those subjects was the death of the most accomplished the most enlightened and in spite of great faults the most estimable of the statesmen who were formed in the corrupt and licentious whitehall of the restoration about a month after the splendid obsequies of mary a funeral procession of almost ostentatious simplicity passed round the shrine of edward the confessor to the chapel of henry the seventh there at a distance of a few feet from her coffin lies the coffin of George Saville, Marquess of Halifax. Halifax and Nottingham had long been friends, and Lord Eland, now Halifax's only son, had been affianced to the Lady Mary Finch, Nottingham's daughter. The day of the nuptials was fixed, a joyous company assembled at Burley-on-the-Hill, the mansion of the bride's father, which, from one of the noblest terraces in the island, looks down on magnificent woods of beech and oak, on the rich valley of Catmos, and on the spire of Oakham. The father of the bridegroom was detained to London by indisposition, which was not supposed to be dangerous. On a sudden his malady took on an alarming form. He was told that he had but a few hours to live. He received the intimation with tranquil fortitude. It was proposed to send off an express to summon his son to town. But Halifax, good-natured to the last, would not disturb the felicity of the wedding day. He gave strict orders that his interment should be private, prepared himself for the great change by devotions which astonished those who had called him an atheist, and died with the serenity of a philosopher and of a Christian, while his friends and kindred, not suspecting his danger, 
were tasting the sack-posset and drawing the curtain. His legitimate male posterity and his titles soon became extinct. No small portion, however, of his wit and eloquence descended to his daughter's son, Philip Stanhope, fourth Earl of Chesterfield. But it is perhaps not generally known that some adventurers who, without advantages of fortune or position, made themselves conspicuous by the mere force of ability, inherited the blood of Halifax. He left a natural son, Henry Carey, whose dramas once crowded audiences to the theatres, and some of whose gay and spirited verses still live in the memory of hundreds of thousands. From Henry Carey descended that Edmund Keane, who in our time transformed himself so marvellously into Shylock, Iago, and Otello. More than one historian has been charged with partiality to Halifax. The truth is that the memory of Halifax is entitled in an especial manner to the protection of history. For what distinguishes him from all other English statesmen is this, that through a long public life and through frequent and violent revolutions of public feeling, he almost invariably took that view of the great questions of his time which history has finally adopted. He was called inconstant because the relative position in which he stood to the contending factions was perpetually varying. As well might the pole star be called inconstant because it is sometimes to the east and sometimes to the west of the pointers. To have defended the ancient and legal constitution of the realm against a seditious populace at one conjecture, and against a tyrannical government at another, to have been the foremost defender of order in the turbulent Parliament of 1680, and the foremost defender of liberty in the servile Parliament of 1685, to have been just and merciful to Roman Catholics in the days of the Popish plot, and to exclusionists in the day of the Rye House plot, to have done all in his power to save both the head of Stafford and the head of Russell. This was a course which contemporaries, heated by passion and deluded by names and badges, might not unnaturally call fickle, but which deserves a very different name from the late justice of posterity. There is one, and only one, deep stain on the memory of this eminent man. It is melancholy to think that he, who had acted so great a part in the convention, could have afterwards stooped to hold communication with Saint-Germain. The fact cannot be disputed, yet for him there are excuses which cannot be pleaded for others who were guilty of the same crime. He did not, like Marlborough, Russell, Godolphin, and Shrewsbury, betray a master by whom he was trusted, 
and with whose benefits he was loaded. It was by the ingratitude and malice of the Whigs that he was driven to take shelter for a moment among the Jacobites. It may be added that he soon repented of the error into which he had been hurried by passion, that though never reconciled to the court, he distinguished himself by his zeal for the vigorous prosecution of the war, and that his last work was a tract in which he exhorted his countrymen to remember that the public burdens, heavy as they might seem, were light when compared with the yoke of France and of Rome. About a fortnight after the death of Halifax, a fate far more cruel than death befell his old rival and enemy, the Lord President. That able, ambitious, and daring statesman was again hurled down from power. In his first fall, terrible as it was, there had been something of dignity, and he had, by availing himself with rare skill of an extraordinary crisis in public affairs, risen once more to the most elevated position among English subjects. The second ruin was indeed less violent than the first, but it was ignominious and irretrievable. The peculation and venality by which the official men of that age were in the habit of enriching themselves, had excited in the public mind a feeling such as could not but vent itself sooner or later in some formidable explosion. But the gains were immediate, the day of retribution was uncertain, and the plunderers of the public were as greedy and as audacious as ever, when the vengeance, long threatened and long delayed, suddenly overtook the proudest and most powerful among them. The first mutterings of the coming storm did not at all indicate the direction which it would take, or the fury with which it would burst. An infantry regiment, which was quartered at Royston, had levied contributions on the people of that town and of the neighbourhood. The sum exacted was not large. In France or Brabant, the moderation of the demand would have been thought wonderful. But to English shopkeepers and farmers, military extortion was happily quite new and quite insupportable. A petition was sent up to the Commons. The Commons summoned the accusers, and the accused to the bar. It soon appeared that a grave offence had been committed, but that the offenders were not altogether without excuse. The public money which had been issued from the exchequer for their pay and subsistence had been fraudulently detained by their colonel and by his agent. It was not strange that men who had arms, and who had not necessaries, should trouble themselves little about the petition of right and the declaration of right. But it was monstrous that while the citizen was heavily taxed for the purpose of paying to the soldier the largest military stipend known in Europe, the soldier should be driven by absolute want 
to plunder the citizen. This was strongly set forth in a representation which the commons laid before William. William, who had been long struggling against abuses which grievously impaired the efficiency of his army, was glad to have his hands thus strengthened. He promised ample redress, cashiered the offending colonel, gave strict orders that the troops should receive their due regularly, and established a military board for the purpose of detecting and punishing such malpractices as had taken place at Royston. But the whole administration was in such a state that it was hardly possible to track one offender without discovering ten others. In the course of the inquiry into the conduct of the troops at Royston, it was discovered that a bribe of two hundred guineas had been received by Henry Guy, Member of Parliament for Hayden and Secretary of the Treasury. Guy was instantly sent to the Tower, not without much exultation on the part of the Whigs, for he was one of those tools who had passed, together with the buildings and furniture of the public offices, from James to William. He affected the character of a high churchman, and he was known to be closely connected with some of the heads of the Tory party, and especially with Trevor. Another name, which was afterwards but too widely celebrated, first became known to the public at this time. James Craggs had begun life as a barber. He had then been a footman of the Duchess of Cleveland. His abilities, eminently vigorous, though not improved by education, had raised him in the world, and he was now entering on a career which was destined to end, after a quarter of a century of prosperity, in unutterable misery and despair. He had become an army clothier. He was examined as to his dealings with the colonels of regiments, and as he obstinately refused to produce his books, he was sent to keep Guy company in the tower. End of section 1